everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist. My name is Joe Lowry, and on today's show, myself and Jordan Angeli answer your listener questions. What do we predict will be the next tactical evolution in Major League Soccer? Should United States women's national team head coach Vlatko Andonovsky use Crystal Dunn like Bob Bradley and LAFC use Latif Blessing? How does Freddie Montero fit into Brian Schmetzer's tactical plan up in Seattle? Jordan and I answer all of those questions and more on the show. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, Joe, should we get into it? You want to give us the first question? Oh, let's do it, Jordan. This first question is from Sean (laughs) Hardgrove, who says, In MLS, a passing six seems to be taking over from a pure destroyer in that position. Any guesses as to what the next tactical evolution to sweep the league will be? I like sweep the league. It's like sweep the leg from Karate Kid. It's it's just like that. Sean, I don't I don't know if that's where you're going, but that's where yes, I took ooh. it. I'm not 100% sure that <laughs> I I'm down with the fact that the passing six has overtaken the destroyer. Joe, I wrote the same <laughs> no thing. Way. Okay. So so we're not we're not convinced because yeah. I feel like for every Eduardo Atuesta, who's controlling midfields in LA, there's like a, a Jose Martinez or other more defensive-minded number sixes. And I think that's true, not just in Major League Soccer, but around the world, because a lot of teams still do play mm-hmm. a very defensive style. They need cover in those spots. I don't know, Jordan, do you, I mean, you clearly push back against that slightly. We can still answer the question, Sean, don't yeah. worry. I think it's still a great question, but go ahead, Jordan. I do too. I think it's a really good just awareness of different trends that we're seeing in the sport in general. But I said I would challenge this a little bit because I think that sixes have always had to have this balance between destruction and poise or destruction and the ability to build out and be a linking player. So I think where maybe I would say the evolution has gone is sixes have become a little bit more playmakers or instigators in the attack. And that's kind of where I pulled out of what I pulled out of that. I don't know if you would agree with that. No, I would. Because we have seen, I just, Atuesta is kind of the prototype in my mind for the the more passing number six in Major League Soccer. We've seen players uh-huh. like Atuesta, or I guess Atuesta is like the players we've seen before him, but we've seen Sergio Busquets pulling strings in midfield for Barcelona for 10 years now. And for every Busquets, there's a Conte. Who, they're all, it's just all a scale from one end to the other with different skills, mm-hmm. and most of them fall somewhere in the middle. But again, yeah, we're kind of splitting hairs here because we can still answer this question. That's just a fun, yeah. a fun pre, pre discussion here. I think, Jordan, yeah. to answer Sean's question, I think 100%, and this isn't going to surprise anyone here. Ooh. I think that ball playing center backs and just offensive minded center backs are going to be that next evolution at a certain position in Major League Soccer. I think they're going to come in and make one dimensional center backs, the ones that, maybe are just good at the defensive side of the game and they're not asked to pass the ball forward or to carry the ball forward. Mm-hmm. I think a few years from now, those one-dimensional center backs are going to look obsolete, honestly. Do you like is that mm-hmm. is that outlandish or is the game kind of headed that direction? Well, I think every single we've we've watched as soccer has evolved and every single position have has become more of a deeper skill set. And I think that that is maybe one of the last positions. If you're talking about a 6 going from a destructive player to a a attacking, passing, poised player, the same thing can be said about a center back, right? You have the same, a lot of those same tendencies. And so I, I, I think that's a good shout, but I think in general, having a center back that can, or center backs that can do that only allows you to do more, um, 
diverse things tactically going forward, because then you have the ability as defenders already there in place as the center backs, but then they could build up and come into the attack and be more ball playing. I think that that is only going to allow the players in front of them to have more ability to not roam free, but to see what's there and to play the game instead of um, play the position. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are already a few center backs that I would qualify as more modern center backs in major league soccer. And we'll talk about those with another question that we have. So I'm not going to spill the beans yet, but Jordan, what is, thank you. Thank you. I try. What is your, your answer to Sean's question about the next kind of position tactical evolution? I, I thought of uh, some of the teams that we see and some of the players that we see in MLS right now. And I thought uh, we hear this term pocket winger a lot. Yeah. And I thought even more than that, a winger, not only being a pocket winger, but almost as a second number 10, where they drift so far inside that they become like this inverted triangle with the, the number nine, leaving a channel outside for the, the either winger or, or sorry, wing back or defensive uh, outside back. And drifting so far inside that they're they're one of those playmakers you want them in the place where the ball is going to be where there's tight numbers and I feel like we see this right we saw it last year and I think there's one clear example of (laughs) what I I saw of this um Kevin Molino and Emmanuel Reynoso were they did this so well and so fluidly but I think we also talked about it how Seattle could potentially do this going forward and uh, play Ladero as a a winger and bring him inside and tuck him in as a a second number 10 so I think that there's a few different teams that could you could use this because they do set up in a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 that this could be a potentially easy tactical adjustment for them what do you think? I like that a lot. And and just as a quick terminology refresher, we've talked about this before, but a pocket winger, as opposed to maybe a more traditional winger, a pocket winger kind of starts inside. They start in the pocket more centrally, not all the way in the middle, but more in the half mm-hmm. space on either side, whereas a, a more old school winger would start a little bit wider and either drive to the end line or cut inside. So we see pocket wingers, and we saw it a lot with the crew last year with Pedro Santos playing on on one side and Zellerian in the middle and then Luis Diaz sometimes on the on the far side or whoever it is playing that opposite side. I think we can see exactly what you're describing with not just a pocket winger but another number 10 in Columbus. Just like we saw it in Minnesota last year, I think Molino and Zellerian have the potential to do pretty much the same thing. It won't be it won't be as shocking as it was in Minnesota with Reynoso and Molino right. just because I don't think we were expecting them to become that fun in the attack. We know the yeah. crew are already good in an attacking sense. But yeah, there's no reason why Kevin Molino and Enzelaran can't just play in similar spaces and combine all the way up the field. Or even like I think Orlando, Chris Mueller tucks inside a lot. Yeah. He yeah, could be one of those example. players who could play the winger or could tuck inside. Or if you're talking about Colorado Rapids, Eunice Nomaly sometimes starts as a winger. He could tuck inside and be that second number ten. So I do think that there is ability to for a, a number of teams to utilize that tactic a little bit more. And maybe we'll see that this year. Maybe we'll see it next year. Maybe we can look back on this five years from now and we'll look like geniuses or fools. Who knows? Um, Jordan, <laughs> I'm going to move us to the next question. This isn't the next one in order as I sent them to you, but I think it fits at least with my answer. It's the, the rest of the tease that I gave earlier. This question is from Nick who says, or who asks rather, if you could build a back three of the most press resistant center backs in the league, who would it be and why? Who would be in that back three and why? I'm going to do a quick explainer again press resistant means you know you have a player running at you and your team's on the ball you're on the ball in your own box or in your own half or whatever it is and someone is coming to close you down and they're going to press you 
being press resistant is your ability to literally resist that press, to, to maybe throw a feint one way and move around that player or to, to beat him on the dribble or do whatever it is to bypass that pressure. That could even be passing or it could be dribbling, things like that. So there's a, there's a little quick explanation on that term. Mm-hmm. Jordan, I, I had some, some difficulty choosing just three because there are Me a handful too. of guys in MLS who can do this. But I did it. I got it down. But I want you to go first. Jordan, who's in your press resistant back three? Well, first, I want to ask you, when you were looking at defenders, were you looking only at center backs, not including any of the outside backs in? If they, Or were you saying if they could play a wing back in a, you know, if it's a three back and they could play a wing back position, you're just kind of tossing them out? I just I just tossed the wing backs out and focused only on the back three. But I think you have license to roam and do whatever you want with this question, Jordan. No, I, I did that too, but there was some wingbacks that I was like, oh, this could be interesting. But then when you play them in that back three, you maybe take away some of the ability that they would have going forward. I think Matarita is one of the players that I was like, oh, he's like he's pretty good with the ball at his feet. He yeah. can get away from pressure. But I wouldn't want to take him out of a wingback role. So I don't know, Joe. I got I, I, Then I was looking at teams and just how teams did last year and – trying to kind of look at their how many goals they gave up and what I thought of them tactically as a defensive unit. And I got down to four players, and I really couldn't narrow it down. (laughs) So maybe you can help me. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. It's not not a back four. It's a back three, right? Back three of most press resistant. Uh, The first one I wrote down was Luis Binks. Yep. Top of my list as well. I like him. Me too. Recovery speed, I I think I don't think he always makes the correct choice. But I think his recovery speed, his ability on the dribble to go forward, I like him. He's young. He's pretty tactically aware. He can s- spray a ball around the field. So I see him as one of maybe the outside um as an outside one of the the three, not the center center back. Yeah, and and to cut in, I have him on the left side of my back three because he is left-footed and plays more on that side for Montreal at times, or at least that's his dominant side. So I think, you know, I'm envisioning uh, an opposing right winger closing him down as this fictional team are trying to build out from the back and Binks just sort of sidesteps that pressure and then pings a diagonal with his left foot. That's in his wheelhouse for Mm. sure at that spot. Okay, so we both can agree the, the left side is Luis Binks. Boom. There we go. Okay, then I I was thinking about that center, that center, center back position. I don't know. It's hard for me not to put like two of the best center backs in that place. So it's Jonathan Mensah or it's Walker Zimmerman. Mm. And I think that's really where I struggled a lot is how do I get one of those two players? Because Jonathan Mensah, one of the best uh, goals against average on the uh, in the league last year, one of the best center backs in the league, won the league, captain, leader, organizer. I think that organization is really key when you're talking about a back three. Um, but then Walker Zimmerman, how many times do we see him, Joe, go on runs yeah. and dribble out of situations? And I think he has a little bit more of that, of that forward thinking, uh, attacking idea. So that's where I'm at with that. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. I think at times I get a little bit scared about Walker Zimmerman. As much as I hype him up on Twitter and, and we'll post those clips of the runs he makes for Nashville in big games, I I think I would be a little fearful of having him in my press-resistant back three because in this situation, I'm imagining myself just hyping up those three players' abilities in training and consistently emphasizing we want to break the press on the dribble or with the pass or whatever it is. 
I think Zimmerman might go off the rails a little bit there. So if I'm you, Jordan, I might go more Mensa. But then again, if the question is press yeah. resistant, maybe Zimmerman is better. I I got nothing. I got nothing. You can have an honorary yeah. back four. We'll we'll let, we'll let you have four. Well, I'll, I'll I'll narrow it down. Let me just tell you my last one. Because okay, please. The last one I have is Anton- Antonio Carlos, and I just like this guy. I think that one of the big reasons that Orlando had such a turnaround was because of Antonio Carlos and his presence as a center back. So he would be my my third center back, and I I am gonna I'm gonna narrow it down to three. I'm gonna do it because that's the question. <laughs> You're so brave. Luis Binks, Jonathan Mensa, and Antonio Carlos are my three. So. I like those a lot. Love it or hate it, that's where I'm going. I like those a lot. My back three is Luis Binks on the left. Mauricio Pineda of the Chicago Fire. Also, I want to say Luis Binks of Club de Foot Montreal, because I haven't said that full name on mic yet before. So that, I don't know, I had to get that first one in there under the wire. This is your chance, Jordan, if you want to sneak it in. (laughs) I'll I'll do it next time just (laughs) to throw people for, uh, you know, (laughs) surprise them. Okay, sounds good. I have Luis Binks of Club de Foot Montreal on the left. I have Mauricio Pineda from the Chicago Fire on the right side, currently with the U.S. Olympic team training in uh, Guadalajara, down in Mexico. I think Pineda's ability to stride forward with his with his right foot, especially on that right side and ping passes, he's positionally versatile as well. I don't really like him as a number six, yeah. but he can do that job. He did it in college, certainly. He's very aware for a center back, maybe not so aware for a defensive midfielder, but I like him at that spot for my back three. And then Eddie Segura I have as my center center back. The biggest reason I had him there, he's not as much of a dribbler as Binks or Pineda or even some of the guys that you mentioned, Jordan. Certainly not as much as Walker Mm -hmm. Zimmerman, but he's really two-footed with his passing. And I think about that center-center back spot, if you're right-footed or left-footed, you can get pressed in a way that it makes it difficult to pass the ball out of those situations. If you're comfortable playing passes with both feet like Eddie Segura is, I think you can knife your way and wiggle your way out of more situations than you might be able to otherwise. So I've got Binks on the left, mm-hmm. Segura in the middle, and Pineda on the right. That's what I'm going with. But man, there are some good honorable mentions that didn't make my list that maybe didn't even make your list, Jordan. Matt Hedges, I had down as an honorable mention. Yeah. Ike Opara when he's healthy. Calvo, if you can yeah. get him to uh, relax a little bit and not do some crazy well, stuff at times. that's a stretch, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> LGP, I have. He kind of falls into that Calvo category at times as well. Figal yeah. as well in that yeah. crazy group. Maxime okay. Cheneau is the last one I had. I think all of those guys yeah. fit the bill as good, solid, well-rounded, or at least in an offensive sense kind of center backs. Yeah, I was thinking about Maxime Cheneau as well. I, th- I He was in that initial list that I had. And I I think it's important because I think when you isolate those players individually or put them with their teams, if you then add them up into with these center backs next to them, who would be quote unquote, like our best of the best. Right. I think that players would, have more ability, maybe a Figal on the dribble to make a mistake because then he is covered a little bit yeah. more with the other plays that we have around him. So, um, yeah, I like I like that entire list, and I think we nailed that. Maybe we should see what other people think. If I would you guys love that. have a back three, if you have a back three that you think maybe could challenge our back threes, let us know. Or just let us know <laughs> who you think are better, Joe's or Jordan's. <laughs> yeah, you can tweet at us at MLS Assist Pod on Twitter. Nick, that's an awesome question. Thank you for that one. This next yeah. one is another from Sean Hardgrove, who says, okay, this has been bugging me. Well, Sean, we're going to try to fix that. Should Vlako Andonovsky, U.S. Women's National Team head coach, play Crystal Dunn like LAFC plays Latif Blessing? Jordan, I'm going to have you do most of the legwork on this one. I'm only uh-huh. basically going okay. to define how LAFC use Latif Blessing, and then I'll just chime in okay. when you've done all the actual work. 
So Latif Blessing <laughs> used to play out wide for Sporting Kansas City. He can play in a bunch of different spots. Bob Bradley, when he came to L.A. after a little while and, and Bob Bradley moved away from that 4-2-3-1, Latif Blessing became a pressing central midfielder, playing in front of a number six and next to another central midfielder. So it's that that triangle with the point at the base, that's the number six, and then the two number eights. Blessing was that high energy, and still is that high energy, pressing destroyer number eight that really helps LAFC press. He kind of is LAFC's press and then can still make some plays in the attack as well. So that's how LAFC used Latif Blessing. And, and the women's national team under Vlatko use a roughly similar 4-3-3 shape. So you can make this comparison between Blessing mm-hmm. and Crystal Dunn if you want to. But Jordan, should we make that comparison? Well, Blessing also plays outside back at yeah. times for Bob Bradley. And so I, I thought about it in multiple ways, not only just that midfield position that you were just explaining so well, Joe, but also as the outside back and what Latif Blessing does as an outside back. And so hmm. I think... My initial response was, should should Vlako Andonofsky play Crystal Dunn like LAFC uses Blessing? Uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I think I think that that's a really good idea. And I think that as an outside back, Vlako utilizes a lot of those same tactics that Blessing might use uh, or that uh, Rob Bradley might use with Blessing when he's playing outside back. So if we just stick to there, uh, Blessing likes to come inside, be an additional midfielder. We saw Crystal Dunn do that all the time in the She Believes Cup. Tuck inside, allow the other midfielders or the wingers to use the space out wide and really become a creative, centralized players who who can connect and combine. We see Latif Blessing doing that when he's an outside back and his ability and both of their abilities to recover and get into the right sp- space defensively is something that I think that is is really utilized at the outside back spot. I just struggle with the midfield role because yeah. if you look at the midfield for the U.S. Women's National Team, <laughs> it is loaded. It is the it is the deepest midfield I think we have ever seen for for the U.S. Women's National Team. And so, why would you take a player who could you you could utilize with her uh, attacking mindset? And even sometimes used as an additional midfielder, why would you just start her in the midfield instead of using her as an outside back where she could, you know, you really play and fulfill that role uh, as one of the, I would say, arguably the one of the best in the world. But then as she gets forward, she can attack on the wing. She can attack centrally. She could be a playmaker. Uh, so I do think that the outside back spot. Although I agree with you, Sean, I think she can be used there. I just don't think it makes sense for the way that. Vlaco has his roster. I heard you talking about this with Taylor on TSS, right? That question of where should mm-hmm. Crystal Dunn be playing? That's going to keep popping up. That's not going to go away. But I, as I was listening to you and Taylor talk about it, I was just sort of nodding silently with my, with my earbuds in as uh-huh. I was listening because <laughs> I 100% agree with you, Jordan. There's just not a lot of need for Crystal Dunn to play as a number eight with the women's national team on a regular basis. If it's a rotational basis, different story. Yeah. I think she can be awesome totally. at that spot if needed. But taking her away from left back where she can do all the things that you described, similar to what Latif Blessing can do for LAFC, you know, you you add so much more value at left back if you're Crystal Dunn than you add in the middle of the field. And so I, I think that's kind of the answer, at least in my view. And it seems like in your view and in Vlatko's view as well, why add another number to the midfield depth chart on a regular basis when you could just take that number out and have an awesome left back instead? Right. Whereas with Bob Bradley and LAFC, Blessing came into that midfield at a time where they needed that specific skill set in that pressing type of attacking player. And I think that it really balanced well with the players around 
around him. Whereas with the U.S. Women's National Team, they have players like that already. So to add into that mix is just, it's more difficult. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we are three questions deep. On to question number four. This one is from James Porter, who asks, how do you see the crew's tactical adjustments in the double pivot changing when Aiden Morris gets rotated in? James then says Nagby is the older player, but Morris can play the six and the eight. How do you see this partnership forming in a Morris-Artur midfield versus a Nagby and Morris partnership? Jordan, my first question for you is to to set the foundation here. How does the Nagby-Artur partnership usually work? Because if we're talking about trying to put Morris in and trying to fit him into that pairing somewhere when one of those guys is gone, Mm -hmm. I think we need to figure out how the initial pairing actually works. What different things does Nagby do versus Artur in that double pivot for the crew? Yeah, I just want to say hi to James, too. Good question. Thanks for asking. He's always um, asking questions here and with the crew as well. So it's nice. Nice. How he wants to keep learning. We all we all love that, right? And I've I met think James. That this question challenged me. I've met James You've down met in James. Tucson. Hi, James. There Continue. You go. go ahead, well, Jordan. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that what I like best about Artur and Nagby is there's a balance. They both can... They both can perform similar tasks, but it's never like one is doing all the destruction and one is doing all the attack, right? I think that they're really a balanced pair. And I think if you're talking tactics, I don't really think the crew will adjust much tactically depending on the the player personnel. Because when you're thinking about those positions, right, that both those positions, um, we see Artur and Nagby providing an outlet for the defenders when they're trying to build out of the back. So either becoming a third center back or uh, in between the two center backs or wide wide of the center backs in order to help build out and push the outside backs forward. So that's one of the tactical things those players do. The The opposite player who's not providing that is then being a link player is that next player up who's trying to help connect the the back line to the midfield or further up the pitch. 
And then defensively, so that's that's attack, and they do much more than that. But um, I think that's one of the the key things that the crew do in, in attack. And then defensively, they're sitting in a, either a four four two block or a four two four press, and those two in the middle have to be able to cover ground uh, to be the best that they can be tactically to cover the space, to deny passing lanes, to intercept balls. And so I think that it's important to show a little bit of those tactics and talk about those tactics. Because I don't think, I think you can plug and play a lot of, all three of those players, Morris, Artur, and Nagby. And yes, Nagby is going to be able to evade pressure better than any of the other two. But I don't, I don't know if it is that much of an adjustment tactically. And Joe, I'm curious what you think, because you're not, I mean, compared to me, you're an outsider looking in, right? <laughs> and and you maybe see things a little bit different than I see. So I'm curious what your ideas are. I think generally I agree with you. There's not going to be any major difference when, when you put Aiden Morris into that double pivot and take out Nagby or you take out Artur. It's going to be roughly similar. The biggest change, I think, that's going to happen when Aiden Morris does play as half of that double pivot in the 4-2-3-1, I think he's going to take on more of the defensive duty than Artur or Nagby would. I went back and watched MLS Cup. And I went back and watched uh, Aiden Morris's last two appearances in the regular season. I think one was against Atlanta mm-hmm. and the other against Orlando. Over the course of those three games, Aiden Morris played next to both Nagby and Artur. He didn't just play next to Artur in the championship game in MLS Cup. He, he had appearances with Nagby as well. And in all of those appearances off the bench and then starting in MLS Cup, Aiden Morris was the more defensively aggressive player. He would step higher yeah. and do more running. And I think it makes sense, right? This young, spry kid is coming in. You want him to do more of the running. You want him to play to his strengths in that way, in a way that Artur and Nagby don't have. They don't have that top-end speed that Morris has. So offensively, I don't think there's going to be a lot of change. Aiden Morris is a capable ball player. He's a capable dribbler, but not in the way that Nagby or Artur probably are right now. But he's good, right? And not not probably good enough, not not poor enough at either one of those things to see a major drop-off. But defensively, I think Caleb Porter is going to use him to step higher at times, to lead the press out of that midfield and step forward into the attacking line, maybe at times. I mean, that that actually won't happen because you've got the number 10 there. But to step higher behind those two players and do more of the dirty work. But that's a pretty minor thing in general compared to all the things that you could ask for the double pivot. I think Aiden Morris is good enough that he can plug and play next to either one of those guys and we won't see a major difference. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a good, the defensive part of it and the, um, a a little bit more defensive edge, I think is something that you can expect from Morris. Cool. Boom. Got it. (laughs) On to the next one. This one is from Ryan Enbaum, who asks, how does Freddie Montero, newly signed Freddie Montero, newly re-signed, sort of, I don't know, depends on how you want to say that. (laughs) How does Freddie Montero fit into Seattle's tactical plan in 2021 and... Can they fit Montero, Ladero, and Rui Diaz on the field at the same time? Jordan, let's start with the first question. Or maybe they're the same question, actually, depending on how you think they're going to line up. How do you think Freddie Montero is going to fit in with Brian Schmetzer's plan for 2021? It's a good question because I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Rui Diaz is so good at that number nine spot. And Freddie Montero, in his heyday, when he was with Seattle, that was his spot. He was the front runner. He was the number nine. He was the poaching goal scorer. You know, all those things that we see from Raul Rui Diaz. Very, I would say in there, Rui Diaz might have a few more tricks in his 
in his bag. But I think Montero has the ability, like Rui Diaz does, to be in the right place at the right time, right? They both really read the play well to uh, find space within the box in order to put the ball in the back of the net. So I think if I'm looking, how does Montero fit into Seattle's 2021 tactical plan? I'm thinking... and. And correct me if you think differently, but I think he's a backup to Rui Diaz. He's he's that second number nine that comes in and maybe is watching the game, trying to figure out how to break down the play and either comes in to replace Rui Diaz or comes in to support Rui Diaz as maybe a a second nine. I I agree with you. I think Montero is here to provide depth first and foremost, because you're probably going to lose Rui Diaz for a chunk of the season as Peru try to qualify for the World Cup and all of those things. So you need that depth. And now, you know, Jordan Morris is certainly not going to be playing for Seattle coming back on loan, coming back from his loan in Swansea because of that knee injury. You needed that other piece of attacking depth. You needed another guy up top. So I think Montero is first and foremost that depth piece like you're talking about, Jordan. But I do think there can be different ways that Brian Schmetzer could use both Rui Diaz and Montero or use Will Bruin and Rui Diaz or use Will Bruin and Montero using two forwards at the same time, especially with Montero, because I think he's a change of pace from Will Bruin and and from Raul Rui Diaz as well. I think he does different things. I think he's more comfortable dropping in. He's more comfortable moving wide. Yeah. I think he's more flexible. And so you could see him at, at the top next to Rui Diaz in a 4-4-2 and essentially just take Ladero out of the picture and play with two central midfielders and, and lose that attacking midfielder. Or it could be a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-1-2 with Ladero underneath Montero and Rui Diaz to get to the second half of that question. Yeah. Because Ladero can do so much running, you don't lose a whole lot in midfield by having Ladero still in there with two forwards instead of just having him underneath Rui Diaz or Will Bruin or whoever it is. So I think there are creative ways that Brian Schmetzer can work this out having another forward in the mix. And we talked about just how Seattle is going to set up without Jordan Morris when Jordan Morris went on Made the move, on yeah. Loan. It wasn't as if I Brian Schmetzer wasn't already anticipating this type of, like, how are we going to fill that role? Do you think that Freddie Montero could play as a winger? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I don't think the Sounders have a ton of first-choice wingers right now at all. So maybe that's a, a factor I haven't considered enough. Montero could be, ha- could be a, a, a spot kind of player at, at either wing spot. So I was thinking about that. Could Freddie Montero be a winger? And they got Kellen Rowe as well, who's yeah. so he could be at that wing spot, um, fill in that wing spot. But I was thinking about Freddie Montero, and I think the thing that he could do it attacking wise, and I would see him more as a pocket winger and allowing the outside back to really utilize the, the channel more and him to come more inside and uh, combine and be a playmaker and be closer into the box in case a cross comes in. But I I think that the defensive responsibilities of a winger might be too much for him. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the one thing that I was really stuck on. So, And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Montero's 33. He is, I think, again, he is depth. That's his main job. But because of how many games are going to be played in MLS this season and in other Mm -hmm. competitions, I think Seattle is going to need that depth. They're going to lose players to international qualifiers and things like that. So it's a good move by Seattle to get him in there. But yeah, we'll, we'll mostly have to wait and see to see how Brian Schmetzer is actually going to use Freddie Montero. All right. I think we're, we're down to the last question. Down to the last question, Jordan. This one is from David B. MLSsoccer.com ranked Carlos Heel as plausible but improbable as an MVP candidate. You guys, talking about you and me, Jordan, have spoken highly of Heel before. Does he deserve to be in a higher 
category. So backstory, I'm doing legwork again. Andrew Wiebe wrote that article. We like Andrew. Hey, hey, he's probably not listening, but if he is, hello. Andrew Wiebe wrote that article and picked the primary MVP candidate from each team in Major League Soccer. And then he divided them into tiers. He had a lot of tiers. I'm just going to name a few of them. He had favorites. He had believable. (laughs) He had all about the narrative. And then he had plausible but improbable, which is where Carles Heel ended up. And that's, I mean... I just am not totally sure I agree with that, but I can also understand the reasoning. Jordan, where do you fall? Does Carlesio belong in a higher tier? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think so. And and the reason why I can understand why we be put him in that um that category, because if you look at the MVPs of this league, they typically are coming from teams who are just loaded with players, right? And yeah. scoring a lot of goals and yeah. doing all these things. And I do think I like the evolution of New England Revolution. Ooh. That was nice. Did there? Yeah, that was good. Thank you. Gosh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> or, or not. I like it. I like what they've done under Bruce Arena because you do see that this is a team with a little bit more punch, that they have the ability to hit you with some different tactical uh, adjustments that are very small but can get the best out of their players and it's hard because Carlos Heel came off a, a difficult year where he came back from injury and yet he still was at the end of the season one of the best I think you could put him in the category of one of the top players in this league still just his ability on the ball his ability to help New England get into the playoffs be successful in the playoffs and if you look back to I don't know if you did this too Joe but I look back to 2019 when he played a full season he had 10 goals and 14 assists. Yeah. And that was only with half the year with Gustavo Bo. Oh, man. He's so good. <laughs> he's so good. Right? And he's so good. And those two have a really good connection. And then you add in Buxa and you add in Bunbury, who was their leading scorer last year. It's a, it is a good um, attacking group. And Carlos Heel, I just I love what he does on the ball and how he can – bring pressure to him and loosen up pressure from somebody else, or he can take people on and create for him himself. I do really think that he should be ranked higher. So that's my, that's my pitch for Carlos Hill. Would you put him in the favorites tier or the believable tier? If we're going up a tier kind believable. of from plausible. Okay. Yeah. Believable. That's, that's the range where I'm comfortable with him being as well, but I can see why Andrew Weeby put him in the spot that he did just because Me too. It, we don't know exactly what the Revs are going to look like under Bruce Arena at any given time. We think they found the tactical blueprint, but I, I'm not as com- I'm not as confident in the Revs as I am in the crew coming into this season, right? That's, that's not a hot take, but I just have more confidence in Caleb Porter's ability to mold a team than I do in Bruce Arena's, and maybe that's a really bad take because Bruce Arena's done it successfully before. But I just feel like there's there's that little asterisk there that we don't know exactly how the Revs are going to look this year and how good of a team they're going to be. But on talent alone and on past production and potential, I think Carlos Steele has all the tools to be up a tier from where he was placed. You you explained why already. I don't need to do any more of that. The players that we put in the believable tier are as follows. Gonzalo Higuain, Alan Polito, Emmanuel Reynoso, Sebastian Blanco, and Raul Ruiz Diaz. Carlos Steele would not look out of place in that group at all. He probably no. wouldn't even yeah. look out of place talent-wise in the favorites group. Carlos Hill is every bit as good of an attacking midfielder in MLS as Zellerayan or as Pozuelo or as Blanco or the list goes on and on. He is every bit as yeah. good as those players are. It just remains to be seen how how big of an MVP candidate he'll actually be this year. And I just have to say, 
like we be we get it like we know we, you sometimes you have to pick these smaller <laughs> groups of people and yep. you're at that like oh gosh do i put them here do i put them there i don't know and um so i i do think that it's a hard it's hard to make those decisions sometimes and know and sometimes you even make them and you're like i just don't know if i believe yeah, that yeah um but i do i do think that he could fit into that what did you say probable yeah into that believable Plausible? tier believable yeah believable yeah in that believable tier we're gonna go there with carlos hill and um we'll have to wait 2021 season's coming right full steam ahead it's getting closer and closer we be we respect the struggle <laughs> of, of putting together a piece like yes. that jordan we are inching closer to the season i'm stoked i'm incredibly Woo-hoo! excited we'll be back again very very soon to talk more major league soccer things to get into the on the field stuff and get you all ready for the regular season jordan you got anything else before we get out of here No, Joe, you just have a great day. Great talking to you. I feel like that was a really fun episode. (laughs) Thank you, Jordan. Have a wonderful day yourself. Listeners, you all have wonderful days, and we'll be back in your ears very soon. 